Yes, it is Radio Richard, and I'm Richard, and we're on the radio. Well, we're not on the radio. We're doing a podcast, and we're doing YouTube, and we're doing all kinds of fun things. But I'm so excited to be here with my friend and long, long time, uh, uh, well, somebody who I've really admired the work of for a very, very long time, since we were actually students together at Berkeley, which is amazing. Back in the dark ages, he and I were there. I was about as fanatically deeply into learning and so i used every opportunity pretty much from nine in the morning till nine at night remember how we could do ensembles uh oh yeah yeah i absolutely remember that well just before we get we get really heavily into it i also for for those people in the audience listening who don't already worship you i just want to you know very very briefly say that uh he's played with so many people and uh Patrick Moran, Dave Liebman, Patty Austin. And then in 77, I believe you joined Bill Bruford's band with Alan Holdsworth. Uh, You've also played with uh, Larry Coriel, Zappa, which I really want to hear about if there are any funny stories, because there must be some funny stories. Uh, Yes, of course, Steve Vai. Anyway, Jeff is continuing to play all over the world, and he gives a lot of people a lot of fun when he does that. And he's got a new CD out called Jack's Songs, which is, of course, the music of Jack Bruce, which is wonderful. And Jack Bruce apparently called you the best bass player I ever heard. Well, no one can argue with that. Uh, and, uh, and you've also got my friend Gary Husband playing on the record. The great Gary husband. Uh, the really seriously great Gary husband. Yeah, and, and, and what a lot of people may not know is that Jeff is also a very respected teacher and has a book out, which is a wonderful multi-volume uh, extravaganza called Bass Mastery, which is really well named because you're a bass master. It's a series. It's actually, I think, maybe the only real sequence bass curriculum anywhere that may function at the highest levels of learning, but it begins in the simplest level, literally from a whole note, and then proceeds onward to Charlie Benakis type approach notes exercises. So everything is sequenced. So uh, bass mastery in terms of the entire course, I'd, I'd like to think that it helps bass players become masterful of bass playing. Well, I, I'm sure it does. And uh, I like that we both have a similar approach to to teaching, but I don't want to get onto that yet because here's what I want to do. I'm going to zap you with just some random questions, which I want you to answer just off the top of that enormous head of yours. So uh, first of all, who are the top three, this is tough, the top three best musicians you've ever played with and why? I played with Gary Burton lightly. Uh, I never really was in his band. Um, He would be definitely amongst them. Gary Burton has to figure into it, even though we've never really gigged together, because I've been so deeply educated by him. Stanley Jordan would be two because of his genius, because in the very least, Stanley Jordan pioneered something that is now kind of taken uh, as a normal approach, which is two-handed tapping. Well, not that many people do it. No, <laughs> I wouldn't say I wouldn't say he spawned a whole army of people who are doing it. A few people tried to take it on. I uh, liken him to 
George Van Epps, who pioneered the seven string guitar. There's one or two people who were brave enough to do it, but you know. Well, I guess Alan Holdsworth might be three. Now, here's another thing, because I like fun. I want to know what the most fun record you ever did. Now, I mean, enjoyable, you know, the, enjoyable to do and why? Well, I would say uh, Road Games, but with Alan Holdsworth, because I was sort of a part of the creative element of the record. I, Alan and I worked together discussing harmony. He gave me a, a lengthy solo, which I practiced for weeks and weeks and weeks and then recorded. So he gave me a lot of opportunity to contribute. And uh, quite frankly, we, we were great kidders together. We were great friends. So there was a lot of fun. I found some photos where we're, we were younger men making faces and sitting side by side recording. I would say that might have been the most fun if I had to use that uh, word for. Okay. No, I, I like using the word fun. I, I just kind of want people to get a kind of overview with some fun things. Now, here's the other thing. You have been gigging all your life and uh, touring all your life. What was the most fun tour you've ever done? I would say early days of Dennis Chambers and Scott Henderson and I in that we, especially Scotty and me, um, we sort of acted like two kids at, at summer camp. And our sense of humor really was uh, pretty out there. Dennis would always sort of like look at us like we were nuts and that made it fun. We, we used to spend hours on the planes chatting and hanging. Uh, we'd jam to warm up, you know, getting sound checked. We'd do the gigs. I would say the most fun might have been with Dennis, Scott, and I. But there's lots of fun. I did one in April with my band. That was a hell of a good time with Asaf Circus mm. and, and with uh, George Vera on keyboards, who I'm playing with next year. So, yeah, I would say every time I had the uh, good fortune of getting out and putting plugging a bass plugging in a bass amp on a stage, I really always looked at touring as great fun. Nothing really seemed off about it or, or negative or untoward. Um, the only negative thing that can happen on a tour is when people aren't cooperative in the tour philosophy and give and take. So I have had tours, and I won't go further into it, where certain uh, fellow musicians were not easy to be with, uh, uh, and that made it not fun. But when I had a, a group of guys, Danny Gottlieb and Richard Drexler and I, when I did my trio, that was fun from the first moment we got together to the to when the tour was over. Yeah, I had a lot of fun on the road. Absolutely. And uh, another great mutual friend of ours, Danny Gottlieb. Sure. Uh, what, what, the nicest guy on earth. And now, how do you adjust? Because you've played with a lot of incredible drummers. How do you adjust to a different drummer? I don't think twice about it. And I'll bet neither does the drummer. The thing is, is how do you adjust when you speak English with me and then go out and speak English with the gentleman or the lady down the street? And then you go and talk to your wife and then you go talk to your friends. How do you adjust? The adjustment is a non-thinking, simple, instantaneous regard of the other person. Sure. Playing is fairly well predictable. 
the basic essence of it for a drummer and I or anybody that I play with or anyone that plays with me is that without asking for it, we're going to provide certain expected jobs where, you know, I'm going to need to play in time. I'm going to need to play the chords. I'm going to need to play the style as the style calls for. So to answer your question, I, I've, I made a list. I played with two, three, four hundred of the top drummers, you know, the last 40 years somewhere along the way and i can't ever recall anybody that i didn't instantly go like this with and the reason is is because what we were expecting from each other wasn't necessary to discuss it was simply expected i'm going to play with richard niles oh richard when we play by the way play in time and play the right chords and let me it isn't even an issue. Uh, certainly, it's an issue in a lot of bass education, which we'll get into in a minute. But uh, there's a complication there, and we'll discuss this. Um, but I have never had a problem, and I'm from what I recall. I mean, maybe in my early days, I was not settled because I was still learning. But I've never had a problem playing with any drummer ever because we knew what was expected of each other. Right, right. A musician feeling it ahead or behind doesn't preclude that a musician chooses to do it ahead or behind. Exactly. I play with guys that are leaning ahead. I play with guys that are leaning behind. And it wasn't an issue. It wasn't, I'm now talking with Richard. Richard uh, uh, uses uh, uh, many words, so I got to intersperse. Or I'm preparing, so Richard doesn't say uh, a lot of thoughts, but expects me to fill those gaps. None of this between you and I is being, let's say, presupposed. Yes. I'm here with you, and we're going as we go. Now, in the in the end of music, it's all based on experience. So wherever the drummer feels it, I'll probably feel it that way as well. I have a quick story. John Mater used to be the drummer with Sly and the Family Stone, and he played with, when I went out on the road, with Billy Sheehan and uh, Stu Ham. We had a thing called B Times Three. And when we played, John and I had just met, and John was always and is uh, a, a top world-class drummer. When he played with me, and I get this with drummers pretty much all the time, they zero in on me and try to play with me to where, wherever I am, that's where they want to go. And what has happened is the thing feels so unsure. So when John and I did this, I said, look, do me a favor and don't listen to me to set the time. Play the time as you feel it, as you hear it. I'll probably agree with it organically. And we are going to do better. And when that little suggestion, I have sometimes a little Miles Davis in me in that I can hear things and comment about them. And that's sort of one of Miles's great successes. It's like play like that or do or don't do that. I have that a little bit. And when John started to play and not listen to me to set the time, we went like this. And I've had this experience for years, for decades, that sometimes guys pardon me and, you know, excited to play with me. will do whatever they can to be the best drummer for me. And I'll say, please do not play your thing your way how you hear it and automatically we're going to go like this and do you know some richard it practically always worked out for the best that way right it's one of my favorite sayings is be yourself who else is better qualified 
And, <laughs> and I think that applies so much to music in general. Uh, so here's my, my last of the sort of uh, off the wall questions. You and I are of a certain age and we've lived through an incredible period of change. Now, I'd like you to just say a few words about how it's different being a professional today than it was in, say, 1976 or 77 when you started getting being a professional. How, what are the major changes that you experience? Well, I, there are uh, certain noticeable changes. Uh, when I started out, when you started out, the focus was pretty much on our ability to provide a service. The service being good time, in your case, good writing, arranging, the, the literal harmony that you might create for your client, like what you did with Paul McCartney. Um, when I started out as a bass player, you know, could you read? Sure, because I was a violinist, so reading was there. Now, could you play in the stock? Can you provide me a service? Because producers that hired us, they didn't do it out of love. They did it out of, if I hire this guy, I'm going to make money from what that person provides me. And it really was that basic. So in the early days, what we provided was skill, ability reading uh the, the ability to 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 uh play with other musicians which really comes from experience now what has happened recently that i've noticed is that the standards have gone down greatly now you'll always have let's say uh, uh a will lee a top level reader a top level player a leland sklar a tony levin the older guys the older crew who have maintained the high quality of reading, providing a service. You need a whole note, I give it to you. You need many notes, I'll give it to you. You need this sound, I'll give it to you. Today, uh, I notice a change where the demands aren't there because I don't think the music requires it. There isn't much studio work anymore. No. Sideman gigs have, are, are fairly well dried up, except maybe at the bar level. Right. Not criticizing the, the level of music, I'm saying what is available. Yeah. So the standards, there's more people vying, certainly out of music schools and, and, and uh, due to the internet, more people were attracted by the excitement of music rather than music itself and are part of the community where a lot of people aren't prepared to play and they are in an industry where, for the most part, most people aren't interested if you play well, except, you know, play a groove or play a thing. Right. So the standards may have gone down, not yeah. all the place, but that's the difference that I've noticed. What do you think? As technology has, uh, oh, sure. ha has come in and you've got um, the, the change in the music business is really in streaming and the playlist rather than the individual record. And I, I talk about this a lot. In fact, I'm doing a video about it now about the effect of the fact that, you know, we've talked about this before. You used to make a religious trip down to the record store and you'd see this treasure trove of beautiful 
exotic sounds from all over the world and you'd religiously love this and you'd say oh my god i've got to have this record and oh i, I th look 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 this is a new record by so and so and you'd you take it home you you'd buy it with your hard-earned money and you you take it home and then you pour over every inch of that record cover and it was a love and it was an important part of your life now what do we got the playlist you know you've got spotify where you can hear the music for free and so therefore it has no value well you know that's that's a major change in who we're playing for as professionals if we want to make a living we have to be paid by someone and therefore as you said so accurately provide a service how can we provide a service when we've spent our lives trying to create high art and all they want is you know a peanut butter sandwich, not not even on decent bread. So, you know, suddenly we're being asked, as I have very often been asked, to uh, polish uh, certain parts of excrement that come out of cows. And, you know, suddenly you're not doing what you've studied and loved your whole life. You're just, you know, kind of changing the oil in the car and leaving. You know, that's that's kind of the change I, I find in, in, uh, in uh, professional music. So now, boys and girls, I'm going to ask you another question, which uh, is particularly apt for you. But the way I'm going to ask you a question is, I recently saw a very funny cartoon. And the cartoon is there's a prisoner tied in a chair. He's obviously been beat up a little bit. You've seen this cartoon, I, I can tell. On his right side is a mafioso type guy oh, yeah, I know this one. and on the left side is the bassist and the bassist says he says he'll talk now boss and the, and, and the mafioso says yeah everyone talks during the bass solo tell me your conception of the bass solo before i do i ha i had this experience uh not just a couple three four years ago i don't recall the gig some I like playing small clubs because that's where I can let go. Anyway, it happened this way somewhere, and I don't. Th I know it wasn't my gig, but it was a gig, and it was playing, playing, playing. And then when I started the solo, literally right here, a lady turned to her colleague and went, "So I was in the store the other day, and I started to laugh because I said because I don't get, I don't take offense to these things. I said, my God, the jokes." is based in a you know, what's the word a, a stereotype type <laughs> overview but i believe stereotypes i do people might be offended by them i totally believe in them black people do not act jewish because of the manner the general stereotype of black people jewish people go like this and everybody knows because there's a sort of human stereotype of us all italian people over here you know i'm talking to you but you're not talking to me the stereotypes are general overviews of society and function so when i started to do this bass solo and instantly a lady turned and i'm not kidding you so i said to him i said that you and i laughed so yeah um the it's a joke based it's a stereotype based in truth that bass solos generally sometimes seem to create you know, now jeff i have ideas of why this is 
I have ideas of why, in many cases, not all cases, and right. of course we know that Mr. Pastorius changed the whole focus of oh, yeah. sound and everything, where mostly if you're in a club, and especially if somebody's playing double bass, but even with electric bass, here's what happens sonically. They're listening to something which is kind of on this level of, of volume, and they're also listening to something in terms of the EQ, which is way up there. So it's, it's easy to hear. It's like somebody slapping your face. You can feel that really easily. But if somebody's kind of waving to you from across the room, you don't feel it as much. So I think that a lot of times bass players expected, you know, it's going to be quieter. And they sort of naively expected people to listen closely and attentively. Well, that's average people, ordinary people. You know, they don't do that. They want what's easiest to assimilate. Now, Jocko said, to hell with that. I'm going to, I'm going to force you to listen to this and, uh, and I'm going to make it fun for you to listen to. But, but the whole sonic thing of it, I have heard double bass players who are clever enough that when they take a solo, they've got control of their sound and suddenly there's something that happens, the EQ, the volume, it's up front. It's, you know, this is my solo. I'm going to, you know, it's not that it's so much volume, but if they, some of them have done, something to their sound. Now it's easier with with electric bass to do that. And I'm sure that a lot of double bass players have a pedal that they can hit, which will just kind of, and I think it's a great idea to do that. But even on records, you know, I, I listen to, to jazz radio a lot. And I hear bass solos and I think, what, what was this recording engineer doing? You know, why has he not put the bass solo up here you know i hear i i also hear a lot of records because have been having been a producer for so long i hear a, a vocalist way back in the mix and you know the bass drum is really loud who needs that i want to hear the singer you know so so that's the kind of thing and and uh, i mean of course i've heard you take lots of solos and and uh you know, it's always like, here it is, guys, bow, you know, but you have a, you have a kind of a muscle, a muscle base thing going on. It's so that you're, you're there as the lead guy. Do you, do you think more people should do that? Do you think that not enough people do that or? Well, in the art, people should do what they wish to do. But I, I, I do agree with you that it's a fact I had the, I, identical idea you did that the reason people may chat in a bass solo is because the volume goes down and the sonic is lower uh the the, the, the octave is lower in pitch the upright bass in general is is a fairly moderately muffled tone with with you know with certain exceptions so should people do what i do i it i would say no as a manner of choice i think people in the terms of being heard as a solo first of all the solo for bass is usually just sort of a a, a part of the show we're going to give the bass player some um the reason why it works for me is because i came right out of gary burton's school of every song he plays the melody just about and solos just about every single song and uh Joe Pass did the same thing, and and uh, and and Coltrane did the same thing, and Miles more or less did the same thing, and there has been a complete presence of every leader. So that's what got me to do this here, where 
it could be boring it could be redundant if i didn't have or strive to have a really broad vocabulary so that i could make things different because by the third song when you're hearing a pentatonic over and over people are not going to enjoy it it's all i've ever sort of pursued the comping part for me is is easy because it's required it's mandated that i support the the people that play that i play with when you play on electric bass you know oh. you you make i mean sonically whenever i've heard you 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 know you take one or two steps out and your sound takes one or two steps out you know and so and that have and even with 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 uh upright bass which is maybe a little different man when john patatucci solos it sounds great and yeah well he's he's, he's, one my, he's one of my favorite musicians and you know when he solos he's you know he he becomes the lead guy and and uh Bill Evans at Town Hall is one of my favorite records ever made. Chuck Israel's. Oh, quiet. Chuck, Chuck, yeah, Chuck plays some beautiful solos on that record. And get this, he's at Town Hall, the whole audience is enraptured by it. You know, they they shut up and they listen and they, because the, the whole concept in 1966, is it, when that was? The whole idea of people listening to music and going to a, a concert or a gig is different from what we have today. Today, we've got these rotten things, and these things are annoying us all day. Ding, ding, ring, ring, people wanting something from you, and we have the concentration of a goldfish. Therefore, you need to make music that is everything in your face all at once and never giving the audience a moment's rest. Well, this is the way it's changed for me, uh, the, the experience, because I still believe in uh, dynamics. I know it's an old fashioned idea, but <laughs> I just think it's so important. Keith Jarrett was performing. I think he made a, a, a big mistake with his audience, which was to demand that they absolutely don't move, talk, cough, or anything else during his show. I think the demand became obligatory to where it had to affect an audience's listening. And the funny thing about, at least in my particular regard, is that if people talk, I ignore it. Nobody talks during my solos. Nobody chat. You know, I've actually gotten rooms to just go dead silent. And I have to assume that the reason being is, is because they've come to hear me play. But if a guy needs to go to the men's room and or a lady has to go to the ladies room or somebody gets a cell phone goes off, I mean, I hear it, everyone hears it, but I'm not wound up by audience members involved in their lives a little bit. I, I, I would say they could take a cue from how uh, audience members listening to uh, Yehudi Menuhin used to play, or yeah. or when when Horowitz played, or somebody, yeah. you know, people went to listen. But if other, yeah. if I don't make those demands, I think Keith did a little bit of a disservice to his shows. Obviously, it hurt his career. We go to see a gig, and it's a time in our lives. It's we're there. We're going there for an event. Right. We want to be. The audience wants to be part of it. When you're playing and you play some hip little thing, I I love it when somebody in the audience goes, yeah, 
And I'm one of those guys. I'm sorry. But when somebody's playing and they play something great, I go, yeah, man, you know, whatever, hipster that I am. And I think that talking back, you know, when you go to movies in the South, the audience is always talking back to the to the screen. And I love that. That's great. And I, you know, I, why shouldn't people laugh in a comedy? Why shouldn't people, you know, of course, I don't like it if they're talking to a hey, Selma. You, did you hear what happened in the, you know, that that I don't want to hear. But if they're engaging with the music, let him let him let him be there. I mean, he's not in a recording studio. He was on a stage. And, you know, some some musicians are just a little bit obsessed by that. I've never had a bad audience. That's to begin with. And no matter what happened, it's always been, uh, and I'm not just saying this to patronize people. I've never had a bad audience. I don't remember one bad audience ever, at least on my instrument. Bass players say they play so that people can dance, people can be happy. They play for the audience. You entertain the audience. Here's the interesting thing that I believe. I never play for people in the manner that I think people might think one plays to them for. How's that for weird English? I play for myself. I always have. I entirely get into it for me. I play for me. I play for my colleagues. But I'm always aware there's people listening. Sure. So I don't do this and sort of have the miles I turn my back on you idea. But I do it where I'm not trying to please you. I'm trying to please me. And I really believe that if I can make the best music for me, knowing people are there, that, that they're going to get the best entertainment out of me. That absolutely, they absolutely, I agree with that a hundred percent. And and by the way, as a small extra thing, Miles said that the reason he he went off to the side of the stage and turned his back on the audience, he said the other guys soloing. I want to leave them to be the star. That's their time to shine. Why should I be in the way? Jeff, let me tell you something. This, this has been fun, and this is going to be the end of part one. But man, I want those people to come back on part two, uh, and the people who are listening now and, and new people who they've told, hey, you've got to hear this interview, uh, how great part two is going to be, because we're going to talk about actually the whole world of education. I've saved that for part two. So for now, Jeff, I'll see you in five minutes, because we're going to have part two. Radio. Radio. Radio.